Last week we finished Ezekiel 25, and as you remember, 24 and 25 talked about the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And as I have told you all, just about every time we've done this, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He is speaking to the exiles in Babylon, and he is telling them that Jerusalem is about to be sanded flat by Nebuchadnezzar. The exiles do not completely comprehend why they're in exile. They were good church-going folks. They continue to be good church-going folks and don't quite understand it. So what Ezekiel is doing is explaining it to them. So we have the destruction of Jerusalem prophesied. And then in 25, the prophet switches to the surrounding nations. So what we have is Philista and Edom and Ammon and Moab, all of whom, when Nebuchadnezzar comes down there, pile on and make things much worse than what God had in mind. So the prophet addresses each one of them in turn and says what their consequence is going to be. So the next one, which we start tonight in chapter 26, is Tyre. And Tyre is going to take the next three chapters as opposed to a long paragraph for everybody else. It's going to go several places. It's going to start in 26 with an economic reason for the destruction of Tyre. By the time we get to chapter 28, it's going to be a spiritual reason. It's all one thing, but it comes to us in chunks. In order to understand what's going on with Tyre, you also want to be in Revelation 17 and 18. That's the equivalent set of prophecies against Babylon. And one of the things that you'll notice as you're in 17 and 18 of Revelation is the prophecies and the rationale about Babylon are virtually identical to those about Tyre. They read very much parallel. The words are different. I mean, John's recording one and... Ezekiel's recording another, so you've got two different witnesses, and they hear it slightly differently, but the deal is the same. And in the case of Babylon, it comes right out and says what the problem is with Babylon early, whereas with Tyre, as I say, we're going to start with an economic rationale and then move to the spiritual rationale. With Babylon, it's just straight in. But other than that, the prophecies read very much alike. And the reason for that is Babylon, in a sense, replaces Tyre. For all of you who know your geography, Tyre is a port city on the Mediterranean in what is now Lebanon. It is north of Israel. It's composed of two components. The main citadel if you will, is on a island just offshore. Very short distance offshore, there's an island, and that's the main citadel of Tyre. On the mainland, there is another city which is part of Tyre. So you have the mainland city where all the goods and stuff get transshipped because in order to do the trading, the goods have got to get to the shore. They don't want to stack up on the little island. But the little island is the fortress where the king lives and everything else. And Tyre is the 
capital and the origin of the Phoenician Empire. The Phoenicians are a trading people, and as I have said many times before, before the Phoenicians rose, shipping on the Mediterranean was a coast-hugging process. If you wanted to ship something from Cush to Italy, you had to come up and then you skipped around and you went up the Mediterranean coast and you went by Turkey and on Greece. So it was a big, long, circuitous route to ship something from Cush, which is on the northern African side of the Mediterranean, to, for example, Rome, which is on the northern side. So you have North Africa and South Europe, and they're separated by the Mediterranean. And before Phoenicia, in order to get something shipped from one to the other, you had to sort of hug around the coast because they couldn't sail out of sight of land. Navigation problem. What the Phoenicians did was solve that problem. And so the Phoenicians began what is known as blue water sailing. And they were capable of just aiming straight across the Mediterranean from one point to the other, which gave them a tremendous economic advantage. In fact, for those of you who remember your history, you all remember the Punic Wars? There were three Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. And that was when Hannibal did the mountain thing and he took the elephants over the Alps and, and you've all read about that in your high school history book. Carthage was a Phoenician colony in North Africa. So the Phoenicians started with Tyre and they established trading colonies around the Mediterranean, Carthage having been one of them. They went as far as Spain. And as far as I know, they may have gone up the coast of Portugal and Britain. I don't know that for sure. Major, major economic power, major seafaring power, major economic empire. During the time of the United Kingdom in Israel, you'll remember from reading Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, that Phoenicia or Tyre under Hiram was an ally of both David and Solomon. The two of them operated as allies. You especially see that in the building of the temple where Hiram and Tyre sent laborers, sent cedar from Lebanon, sent stone cutters, sent all sorts of folks to help Solomon build the temple. Solomon and Israel represent a land bridge between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. So you have the Gulf of Aqaba, which is where En Gedi is. En is on the north end of the Gulf of Aqaba, and at that time it was again a trading port. And what Solomon would do would be take goods from the Phoenicians, transship them across Israel, load them back on boats down in En Gedi, and then sail down around the coast of Arabia and down to Africa. That was obviously before the Suez Canal. So Israel and Phoenicia were natural allies. Israel controlled the land routes between Africa and Eurasia. The Phoenicians controlled the sea routes across the Mediterranean. And between the two of them, they grew filthy rich, fabulously rich. That was the source of Solomon's great wealth and Tyre was equally wealthy. 
So that's historical setup for you as to who they are, why they're important, and one of the things that you'll notice when you read Revelation 17 and 18 is when Babylon is destroyed, all the ship captains set offshore and weep. And the reason they're weeping is because Babylon is a major trading center and everybody got rich shipping goods to and from Babylon. Now, the other thing that's important to understand about Babylon is Babylon moves. So what you'll discover as you read Revelation, it talks about Babylon, but it's describing Rome. City on seven hills, major seaports, all of that kind of thing. Babylon does not have major seaports. It's an inland city on the Euphrates River. And certainly you get river traffic up and down the Euphrates River, and the Gulf of Arabia then provides access to the rest of the world. So it's a major trading center. But as you read the Revelation account, it's very obvious that God is calling Rome Babylon. And by the way, that is the basis upon which people who are preterists in the end times believe that Revelation has already happened. And, and that the beast, if you will, was Nero, and he's dead and gone, and so Revelation has already happened in that perspective. I don't happen to agree with that, but it's a respectable perspective in Christian circles. So the idea that Babylon represents, in addition to the city where we start, it represents a center of spiritual and economic power that shifts and moves to where the major power on earth is at any given time. So that's the setup. And at the time of this prophecy, Tyre is more powerful than Babylon, certainly richer. And one of the things that's going to happen, for example, is Nebuchadnezzar, on his expedition to take out Israel, is going to lay siege to Tyre. And he is not going to be able to destroy it. He's going to destroy the shore-based portion of it. But he never takes the island citadel. And finally gives up and goes home. He can't take it. Because the island citadel is supplied by the Phoenician navy. So he never can isolate them and cut them off and starve them because they've got their entire Mediterranean basin to draw from. Two empires later, you have Alexander the Great. And Alexander does succeed in reducing the island fortress. And the way he does that is he takes his military engineers and he fills in the ocean between the shore and the island, walks across, and takes it down. So the prophecy of the destruction of Tyre is going to take two different empires to finally accomplish. And by the way, the island fortress and the citadel and everything are to this day nothing. They're gone. We may not get through all of this tonight, by the way. It's three chapters. But a lot of it, we don't really need to stop and talk about. We can if you want, up to you. So chapter 26. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha! The gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you, as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she shall become plunder for the nations. Her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So, obviously you've got two things. You've got the mainland city, her daughters on the mainland. That's the port city on the coast of what is now Lebanon. And it is separated by an ocean estuary from the island. He's talking about both of them. And as I say, the destruction happens in two stages. Nebuchadnezzar will take out the mainland city. Alexander the Great will take out the island fortress. But notice the reason. The reason is when Jerusalem is taken out, Tyre becomes the sole economic power handling cargo and so forth between Africa and Eurasia. The land route, if you will, is no longer under the control of Israel. So now Tyre is going to take over that trade and is going to enrich herself. So the reason given here in this paragraph is economic. When Jerusalem got taken out, you said, oh boy, they're gone. I'm going to really get rich now. Instead of lamenting the fall of their trading partner in Jerusalem, they're looking at it as an opportunity. I'm not sure when and how that broke down. Y'all remember Jezebel, right? She was from Tyre. She was a princess of the Phoenician Empire, and she marries Ahab, in a combination marriage commercial arrangement. So those two have always been close. Now what may have happened, this is a guess, is when the northern kingdom got sanded off, that arrangement may have been disrupted. Onward down to verse 7. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings with horses and chariots and with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. Remember I said Nebuchadnezzar takes out the mainland port city. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. Roof of shields, by the way, you've all seen old war pictures where you got the battering ram going up against the, and what you have above you is some kind of a roof to protect you from the stuff that the people on the walls are throwing down at you. That's a roof of shields, if you will. The siege is going to go against the wall, but they have to be protected from the defenders. So again, he will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering ram against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons and chariots, when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. The idea here is overwhelming force, and the mainland city is not going to be able to resist. 11. 
With the hoofs of his horses he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and timber and soil, they were cast into the midst of the water. Notice, he will loot your merchandise. Remember, this coastal port city is a city full of warehouses where you're transshipping all of the goods that are coming from as far away as Britain and as far away as uh, Spain and the northern coast of Africa, Morocco, and so forth. They trade all over that place. They bring it into the port city of Tyre, and they got big warehouses where they deal with caravans and so forth and transship the stuff. So when he says it will loot your merchandise, that's what he's talking about. 13, and I will stop the music of your songs and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt. For I am the Lord, I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And indeed, Tyre has never been rebuilt. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will not the coastlands shake at the sound of your fall? When the wounded groan, when the slaughter is made in your midst, when all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments, they will close themselves with trembling, they will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you and say to you, how you have perished, you who were inhabited from the seas. O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall, and the coastlands on the sea are dismayed at your passing. So notice two things. Thing one is being astounded that she's taken out. But thing number two is the loss of trade. Now let's skip over to Revelation. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 18, Verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demon, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her people, lest you take part in her sins, and lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. On down to verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So you have the ruling powers who are doing trade and other things with Babylon. Babylon, in this case, as I say, is actually Rome. That's the place that we're actually talking about. We've got seven hills and all that kind of thing. But the point is, everybody around, when that major trading center goes down, is mourning. They realize that they have lost a major asset. Pick it up at 16. 
Revelation 18:16. Alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with jewels, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Remember it says entire, we're going to loot your warehouses. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What you have is a very parallel situation between what will happen or did happen to Babylon, quote-unquote, and what is going to happen to Tyre. All right, so now I'm back in Ezekiel 26. I'm down to verse 19. For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a city laid waste, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. I will make you dwell in the world below, among ruins from of old, with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited. I will set beauty in the land of the living. I will bring you to a dreadful end, and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again, declares the Lord. Virtually every culture that I know of believes that we do not cease to exist when we die. Now, what happens after that are all over the map. You've got some that do the reincarnation thing, and so the idea is to get off the wheel and quit being reincarnated. Some people go down to Sheol or Hades, place of the dead. You had gods of the dead who warehouse these spirits and all that kind of stuff. Some believe you go up to Valhalla where you have a constant party. But nobody actually believes that death is final. They say nobody. That's not quite true. And so the idea of a culture going down like Atlantis, for example, and just disappearing. That's what he's talking about here. There have been empires before you. They have gone down and they are in the underworld. And that's where you're going also. The island will in fact sink, it'll be sanded off. But the idea is the empire itself will join these other deceased empires. Digression here. Atheism is a very modern thing. Up until, oh, probably the late 19th century, everybody believed that there was a God. Now, they may have been anti-church, they may have been anti-Catholic, they may have been anti-Yeshua, but the idea that something happened when you continued to exist afterwards is fairly new. And the thing that made that respectable was Charles Darwin. And reason became trendy in intellectual circles. Sort of like being woke is today, it was a trendy thing. And Darwin then came along with his Origin of the Species, and what he said is everything is evolving, and what happened was the reason mavens grabbed a hold of that and extrapolated back to everything came from rocks. And some guy said that Darwin made being an atheist intellectually respectable, which is to say Darwin provided what they believed was a plausible explanation for how we got here that didn't involve God. 
all cultures before believed some variation of this place was made by the gods or God or whatever. Once you had Darwin, it was intellectually respectable to say, well, you didn't need a god. It just happened. Which, by the way, is why they need billions and billions of years because the probability of that happening is zero. Onward. I'm in chapter 27. The word of the Lord came to me. Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre and say to Tyre who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchants of the peoples to many coastlands, thus says the Lord God. What's going to happen here is we're going to have a long nautically themed poem basically going to describe Tyre's image of herself. This lamentation starts in verse 3. O Tyre, you have said, notice who has said, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. They made all your planks of fir tree from sinner. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. He is describing Tyre as a ship because they are a nautical power. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinner. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your deck of pines from the coast of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. So we have this ship, which is utilitarian, but it's also very opulent. Verse 7. Of fine imported linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner, blue and purple from the coast of Elisha, was your awning. Things that you would normally think were utilitarian, like sails and stuff like that, are being described in terms of opulent textiles. They're not something that you would use in an actual ship. What they're doing is describing the wealth of Tyre in shipbuilding terms. Eight, the inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. The elders of Gebel and their skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. All the ships of the sea with their mariners were in you to barter for your wares. Now we're going to have a list of stuff and all of the places with which she traded and what each of those places brought to her. Some places would bring tin, some places would bring iron, some places would bring textiles, some would bring grain, some would bring ivory. This is just a laundry list, if you will, of all of that stuff. So verse 10, Persia and Lud and Put were in your army as your men of war. They hung the shield and helmet in you, they gave you splendor. Men of Arvad and Helic were on your walls all around, and men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on all your walls all around. They made perfect your beauty. In other words, she hired mercenaries to fight for her. They're merchants. They're not warriors. They got lots of money. They hire warriors. Twelve. Tarshish. Tarshish could be Britain or it could be Spain. It isn't clear at all where Tarshish is, but it's somewhere in the west. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind, silver, iron, tin, and lead they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach traded with you. 
They exchange human beings in vessels of bronze for your merchandise, slaves in other words. By the way, one of the things that was a problem with this naval technology is galley slaves had a fairly short lifespan. If you got to be a galley slave, you could expect to live not more than about five years. And there was a constant need to replenish galley slaves because they didn't last very long. Verse 14, from Beth Togermah, they exchanged horses, war horses and mules for your wares. The men of Dedan traded with you. Many coastlands were your own special markets. They brought you in payment ivory tusks and ebony. Syria did business with you because of your abundant goods. They exchanged for your wares emeralds, purple, embroidered work, fine linen, coral and ruby. Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged for your merchandise wheat, minneth, meal, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus did business with you for your abundant goods. Because of your great wealth of every kind, wine of Helbung and wood of Shahar and casks of wine from Uzal, they exchanged for your wares wrought iron, cassia, calmus, cassia and calmus are, are uh, incense ingredients. Cassia, Calmus were bartered for your merchandise. Dedan traded with you in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Qadar were your favorite dealers in lambs, rams, and goats. In these they did business with you. The traders of Sheba, Sheba is southern Arabia. The traders of Sheba and Raama traded with you. They exchanged for your wares the best of all kinds of spices and all precious stones and gold. Haran, Kana, Eden, traders of Sheba, Asar, Chilmod traded with you. In your markets, these traded with you in choice garments, in clothes of blue and embroidered work, and in carpets of colored material, bound with cords and made secure. The ships of Tarshish traveled for you with your merchandise, so you were filled and heavily laden in the heart of the seas. The idea here is Tyre is a ship, and Tyre is a ship that is full, heavily laden, with all sorts of luxury and trade goods. That's the metaphor that's being pushed here. And one of the things about Africa and Eurasia is they've got different stuff. Down in Africa, you've got things like ivory. You've got luxury things like monkeys. And you've seen pictures of people who have cheetahs for pets and so forth. All of that stuff comes from Africa. Up north from Europe, you've got manufactured goods. You've got spices. Remember when Jacob sends his sons down the second time? Now they go down the first time. Joseph accuses them of being spies. He says, you ain't going to see me again until you bring your brother. So they wait a while until they're almost out of food. And Jacob then said, all right, you guys got to go down there. And Judah says, yeah, if you hadn't held on to Benjamin, we could have gone and come back twice. But what he says is, take a little balm, take a little of this, take a little of that. Some of the luxuries of this region with you as a present for the man. So the idea that different regions produce different things is what this list is about. Your rowers have brought you out onto the high seas. The east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Biblically, an east wind is judgment. For example, when the locusts come to Egypt during the plague of locusts, 
they get blown in by an east wind. The east wind typically represents judgment. Verse 27, your riches, your wares, your merchandise, your mariners and your pilots, your caulkers, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you, with all your crew that is in your midst, sunk into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. Now remember earlier in the first poetic, poetic thing, we were talking about where their caulkers came from, where their mercenaries came from, all that kind of stuff. So you got to refer back to that previous poetic section. Remember he describes Tyre as a ship. And here the ship is going down. And so all of those people that were doing stuff to build the ship, the Phoenician Empire, are going down with the ship. 28. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the countryside shakes, and down from their ships come all who handle the oar. The mariners and all the pilots of sea stand on the land and shout aloud over you and cry out bitterly. They cast dust on their heads and wallow in ashes. They make themselves bald for you and put sackcloth on their waist. They weep over you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. Going back to Revelation in verse 17, for the single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. All the shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all those who trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of the burning. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out. Notice the parallelism between the two prophecies. Verse 32. In their wailing they raised a lament over you. Who is like Tyre, like one destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares come from the seas, you satisfied many peoples with your abundant wealth and merchandise. You enriched the kings of the earth. Now you are wrecked by the seas and the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you, and the hair of their kings bristles with horror. Their faces are convulsed. In other words, when they hear about this, the hair raises up on their arms. The merchants among the peoples hiss at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Interesting thought here is the merchants hiss. What that says to me is, ah, well, that trading partner is down. Let's go find another one. Yeah, terribly sorry that that trading partner is gone, but let's go get another one real quick here. Otherwise, we're going to go broke. So we'll stop there, obviously. I'm not going to launch into 28. So to sort of recap, we got one more chapter against Tyre. The passage in Revelation talks about spiritual whoredom, and that's the reason for destruction. What we've been talking about so far here is commercial and economic, not primarily spiritual. Now, it is very clear from all of this that Tyre is soaked with pride. They've got all the luxuries that the world is able to afford. They've got all the power. They've got all the money. And so certainly they are a proud empire. You get that sense very clearly. What's going to happen in 28 is we're going to shift to the spiritual realm. And what we're going to see when we talk against the king of Tyre or the prince of Tyre is that there is a spiritual demonic 
component over this whole thing. In Babylon, that gets emphasized front and center, first off. With Tyre, it's going to come at the end, and we'll do that next time. The other thing is there is nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth. That's not the problem. What it's talking about, though, is the wealth has made them arrogant. And the wealth is going to have a spiritual component to it, which has captured them. God motivates us with wealth. He says, if you follow my laws and stay with me, your flocks will increase. Nobody will ever miscarry. You'll have to clear out the old crops to make room for the new crops. That's all wealth. And God uses it to motivate us. So that is not intrinsically bad. What's bad is when that wealth disconnects you from God, which it has a tendency to do. 